proves that there's never a guilty sinner. By the way, that's the only kind there are, aren't they? There's never a guilty sinner. There's never a wandering one. But that God can in mercy pardon through Jesus Christ His Son. What a great hymn. And I hope and pray every person here today has trusted Christ as their Savior. If you've not done that, then you're not on your way to heaven, no matter what you may think. Jesus said there's only one way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's an amazing thought why the God of heaven would care. The Bible teaches us in the book of Romans, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And, uh, you know, the world hears that, and they hear uh, men preach on that, and they hear churches teach on that subject, that we're sinners, we're condemned to hell. But can I tell you this? Jesus Christ did not come to this world to bring condemnation. The condemnation was already there. The reason Jesus Christ came was to give us a way to escape that condemnation. That's what's so joyful about the gospel message. That's what's so great news. I mean, this is the best news man's ever heard. I was lost and undone without God and His Son, and I had no way, no way of making it to heaven on my own. I know a lot of people, they teach. I remember my one of my kids coming home from school one day. And it was Reagan. She said, Dad, at school today, the teacher told us that God has a big scale in heaven. He puts all of our good stuff on one side and all of our bad stuff on the other side. And, and that if our good outweighs our bad, then we'll get to, get to go to heaven. And you know the world believes that. 99% of the folks I ask, if you were to uh, tell me how, you, how to go to heaven today, what would you tell me? And usually they say, well, I tell you, you need to live a good life. And that's, that's usually the highest answer I get. You need to live a good life. You know, you, know what the, you know what the Bible tells us God thinks about our goodness? He said it looks like filthy rags. How in the world could we ever come before a just God, the judge of the universe, the judge of all that is, and stand before Him one day with an arm full of just filthy, nasty rags? lay it at his feet and say, this is why I need to go to heaven. That would never get us there. In fact, there's no way. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians, chapter number 2, for by grace are ye saved. Grace is getting something we don't deserve. If you get to the place where you hear the gospel message, you say, but I don't deserve that. Good. Then you're in the right place. Because that's where God can give His grace. It says, For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, there was a rich young ruler that came to the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry. And his question was, What good thing must I do to be saved? That was the exact wording of the question. What good thing must I do to be saved? He thought by doing something good with maybe his his material possessions, or maybe by living a good life, and that he could do something that would get him to heaven. And to help him realize and understand that it would never be enough, Jesus told him to keep all the commandments. Well, has there ever been anyone alive that's kept all the commandments? 
Only the Lord Jesus Christ. No other person has. And this young man, you can almost hear the, the, the pride in his voice, kind of the, wow, I got this made. This is easy. Because he replied, I have kept them from a youth. Jesus tells him now the next time, he says, Then go and sell all that thou hast and give to the poor. And the Bible says the young man went away sorrowful. Unless somewhere down the line that young man came to trust Christ as his Savior, put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and not his own actions, not his own works, unless he came to Christ later in life, that young man is burning in hell today. And this is the sad thought of that story. Imagine being so close to even be at the point of being able to talk to the Savior Himself and to hear Him say, Go and sell all that thou hast and give to the poor, so that He could understand that it is not by what you do. Could you imagine being that close? Could you imagine being so close that he had at least enough conviction in his heart by the Holy Spirit to ask. He wanted to go to heaven. But he went away sorrowful. The Bible says because he had great riches. His disciples were puzzled by this. They began to ask him some questions. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's only one way. And he had taught his disciples this. His disciples began to began to question him, and they said, uh, "How is this possible?" Jesus had told them at the end of this when the young man walked away. He said, "It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven." The disciples were puzzled by that. They they couldn't understand it. They said, "Then how how can a, how can a person get to heaven?" He wasn't speaking of how hard it was, by the way. He was speaking of how impossible it was. Because he made the statement when his disciples asked him, how can a man go to heaven? He made this statement. He said, with men it is impossible. But with God all things are possible. If we're going to make it to heaven, it is not going to be by anything that you or I do. It is going to be by us putting our faith in Him and what He's done on Calvary. We have to put absolute dependence... I shared this story a number of years ago. My my mother, after my dad passed away, put a, a pool in. We used to live down in Florida, and uh, pretty much year-round you could swim in it for the most part. And uh, where we were located anyway, she had a solar heater, so even in the wintertime we could go swimming. And as my kids got older, they wanted to learn how to swim. And uh, Jonathan was just toddling around. He was probably two or three years old at the time, just toddling around and I was out at the pool, and Reagan was trying to learn how to swim. And so I'd get her down to the, on the steps, and uh, she got down to the bottom. She, there, there was, she could have stood on her tiptoes, held her head up, and kept her nose above water. So I told her, worst thing that happens, stand up as tall as you can, put your tiptoes down, tilt your head back, and you'll be able to breathe. You won't drown. And I'm trying to get her to come down these steps. And she got down to the last step, and she just would not come that last step. She didn't want to, she didn't want to be that close. And I'm urging her. I'm like, Ray. And, and I backed up about a foot and a half or two feet. I said, jump towards me and I'll catch you. I promise you, I will catch you. And we went on and on for about four or five minutes. You know how 
kids do. They kind of go forward and backward, forward and backward, can't do it. And uh, I'm, I'm promising her. I said, listen, I will not let you go under this water. I promise you that. And finally, I'm about four or five minutes into persuading her, I hear a big splash, only it wasn't in front of me. It was behind me. My son had heard me saying, jump and I will catch you. I promise you that you won't go under. And he thought that that was just true to everybody that jumped in the pool, I guess. Because I turned around and I looked, and he's down at the bottom of the pool with his eyes wide open like this. His cheeks puffed out. He was holding his breath, fortunately. And I, grew, I and about the time that he did that, Reagan jumped. And I turned just as she was jumping to grab him and pull him up out of the water. And all of a sudden, she jumps in and she goes under the water. And I turn back around. She's at the bottom of the pool with her eyes wide open. Now, there's two principles to learn from this. First of all, Dad was fallible, wasn't he? I promised her, I will catch you and you will not fall. And I failed her in that. By the way, men always will fail. But God never fails. But when she got to the point where she finally said, I'm going to trust Dad. She might have believed me before. She might have been fully convinced that I was going to catch her. But until she actually jumped off that step, she had not put her faith in me. To where she made the decision in her conscious mind of her own free will that I am going to trust Dad to do what he said he would do. And if he fails, then I'm going to the bottom of the pool because he's all that I'm trusting. I can't trust the step anymore. I can't trust my legs or my feet. Can I tell you this, that until we get to the place where we put our faith, our absolute dependence and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to take us to heaven, we're not going to make it. If we are trusting anything other than what Christ did on Calvary for us, we're not going to make it. We may have a funeral. The family may gather and shed tears and sing songs about getting together when we get all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Some old-timers like to sing, Will the circle be unbroken? And the truth is, not everybody that dies goes to heaven. The only ones that do are those that put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that God gives us freely this gift of salvation. If that doesn't make a Christian excited about what God has done for him, I don't know what is. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to work for it. I don't have to labor for it. I just simply have to trust Him. I just simply have to put my faith that He died for my sins in my place. He was buried, and the Bible says three days later He came up out of that grave. He arose from the dead. He ascended to His Father. He took the perfect blood of His own sacrifice. And He sprinkled it on the mercy seat in heaven and covered our sins with His own blood. And the Bible tells us that now when we put our faith and our trust in Him, Christ gives us His righteousness. The Bible calls it imputed righteousness. I was listening to a preacher a few weeks, a few months ago now. I guess it's been. Time flies. I was listening to a preacher. He was uh, talking with a, a lady and trying to share this idea of, of heaven. And 
she couldn't understand. She thought you had to earn your way to heaven and that you had to live a good life. And that was the only way to do it. And he kept trying to tell her, uh, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. And he kept trying to go over these, these issues. And she said, I'm, I'm confused. And she said, you've told me that every person has sinned. And he said, that's right. He said, she said, that means even you have sinned. He said, absolutely, I've sinned. And she said, you also told me that God is a just God and can't let any sin into heaven. He said, that's true, He can't. He, she said, but are there people in heaven? He said, yes, there are. He, she said, how does that work? He said, grace. Grace. Because the requirement to get to heaven is perfection, and you and I can't meet that standard. But Christ did. And He will freely give you His perfection. He'll place His account on top of yours. And when the Lord looks at your account one day, when you stand before Him as the judge, He's going to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's going to say, He's innocent. Not because of what we did, but because of what Christ did. I'm thankful I'm saved. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, can I urge you to get that matter settled in Place your faith in Him. Trust Him and Him alone for your salvation. That's the only way to get there. I was sharing this a number of years ago. And I said, if I knew that my life was in His hands every moment of every day, that I don't have the guarantee of another breath of life, if I knew that, and I did, and I knew that if I did not get saved and died in my sin, that I would go to hell and there would be no, no coming back from that. I said I wouldn't I wouldn't walk. I wouldn't hesitate. I would run to a place where I could get along with the Lord and say, Lord, I'm trusting you and you alone for my salvation. I want to put my faith in you today. And trust him with all your heart. Oh, that we would learn this truth that it is not by our works. That being said, aren't you glad you're saved today? When we get saved, God does a few things for us. He gives us His righteousness. That's exciting. He allows us to escape the consequences, the penalty for our sin. Christ took that upon Himself. He paid that debt for us. He also gives us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to help guide our steps each and every day. I'm thankful He gave us His Word, aren't you? To show us as we are Christians how we ought to live. There's an awful lot of things that we're thankful for being saved today. I want you to look with me in Psalm 23. I almost preached on this last week. Not, a, not a, an extensive message. Not a ton of points on it. But some things I want us to understand that since we are saved, since we have trusted Christ as our Savior, if you have, there's some things that are wonderful about being saved. <coughs> look with me, if you will in this very well-known psalm, as the psalmist pens these words, he says, The Lord is my shepherd. Now that is a statement that I think is so overlooked and so underestimated in its value. You ever thought about this? If, if, if I have to have any shepherd at all, if I have to have someone that, that, that guides me and directs me and looks out for my protection and gives provision where it's needed, if I have to have anyone at all, 
I would go through the world and I would try to find the best person that was suited to be able to do that for me. Can I tell you this? When you stop and think about just that small phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. The, the one that is the King of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one that stepped out into nothingness. And I, I enjoy studying science and I, I love uh, astronomy, not astrology, but astronomy. And I love looking at the planets and the, and the stars and the asteroids and the comets. And I begin to look at the vastness of space. The immensity of just our own galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. And then I realized that this is just one small galaxy among billions of galaxies that are out there. And the psalmist made this statement later in another psalm that the Lord measured space. He measured the heavens with the span of His hand. And it, and it was not, it was not an, uh, trying to give a, me, a unit of measurement. He's trying to speak of the inexhaustibility of God. He is, he is immensely inexhaustible. He stepped out on nothing. He spoke the world into existence. He spoke the plants and the animals and all that was. He uh, formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. He did all of this in six days, the Bible says. And on the seventh day, he rested not because he was tired. Do you understand and realize today that all that is in existence, God created, and not only did He create it, but the Bible teaches us that He holds it all in a tedious balance of nature. He holds it all in reserve. He holds it all together. And when God takes His hand off of this place, it's all going to fly apart. It's all going to go to nothing. It's going to burn. And it didn't even deplete God. I think sometimes we get in our minds that God is vastly powerful, that He's vastly uh, wealthy, that He's got all this stuff. And that, but there comes a point where we could exhaust Him. I was, I was, I had, was talking with someone, it's been about five or six months ago now, and I was, we were talking on, on the idea of praying and walking with God daily. And their comment to me was, I don't pray all the time because I know God is busy. Seven billion people on the earth. He's busy. Holding everything together in the universe. He's busy. Can I tell you this? It doesn't even tire God. He doesn't even have to put forth effort to do so. This is how big He is. And for the psalmist to make this statement, the Lord, this, this God in heaven that did all of this, He's my shepherd. He is my shepherd. He's the one that's going to lead me. He's the one that's going to provide for me. He's the one that's going to protect me. By the way, He's going to be the one that makes the rules that I should follow. He's the one that's going to guide me and chasten me if need be when I don't follow them. And He has every right to. Notice this. The Lord is my shepherd. The psalmist made this statement, I shall not want. Philippians chapter number 4. Uh, the Bible says, But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. How inexhaustible are the riches of God? I was talking... How many of you, How many of you? just, just by show of hands, how many of you have had a need in this life? Maybe it was a, an electric bill or a water bill or a grocery bill or gas. You needed some gas uh, for your car or for your house. How many of you have, any time in your life, have gotten into a need like that 
and you, you thought, I need to pray and ask God to meet that need. Any of you do that? And we kind of expect God to answer those prayers, don't we? But what if that need was a large need, what we consider to be a much harder need? What if there was some reason that we had an absolute need? Maybe we got into some kind of a, a debt, or maybe uh, there, was, there was some uh, major issue that took place. Maybe it was a, a medical bill that got run up because of uh, a physical treatment, and you owe that hundreds, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, or, or half a million dollars. And you know what our first thought is? I'll pray about it, but I'm not expecting God to meet that need because that's an awful lot of money. And you know what we're saying when we say that? That God is limited. That, that God can meet the small needs, but it's hard for Him to meet the big needs. Can I tell you this? It doesn't exhaust Him either way. When the psalmist makes this statement, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And He's promised me that He's going to meet my needs. He's going to supply that which is needful for me then we can trust Him when He says He's going to do that. You say, Pastor, you don't know how big of a need this is. No, but I know how big of a God that promised to meet it. The Lord is my shepherd. This is what we get when we get saved. He doesn't, he doesn't just give us our ticket and then walk off to find somebody else and leave us alone for the rest of our life. He's there guiding and guarding each step of our way. He's watching every moment of our life. He's longing for you and I to, to yield ourselves to His purposes, to His ways, to His commandments, to His statutes. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Notice in verse 2, He says, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He gives us nourishment. And I'm thankful for this. You say, well, Pastor, I know there's been times I haven't been able to get groceries, or I've heard stories in history of Christians that were starving to death. Can I tell you this? I don't know that he's speaking so much here of our bodily supply of food and nourishment as much as he is our spiritual supply of nourishment. It's inexhaustible. Last week we studied Psalm 1, and the Bible says that this man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law doth he meditate day and night. The Bible says that man, this blessed man, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He's going to make sure that you and I have what is needful in our Christian life. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside the still waters. And then if, as if that's not enough, that's during times of, of mountaintop experiences. Look at verse number 3. He what? Restoreth my soul. What a statement. The psalmist knew what it was like. The psalmist had let his had let his eyes and his heart affect some things and he he, he got upset uh, at why the heathen would prosper. And in fact, he was so upset over it that he said, My feet had well nigh slipped. So I just about I just about gave up on it all. Here I am trying to do right and be a man after God's own heart, and things aren't going so well. At the time he wrote that, there were people out trying to kill him. He was on the run. And he had the same thought that I'm sure some of us have had in our lifetime. Lord, I've done all this for you. 
done all this for you. And this is what I get in return. He restoreth my soul. He encourages me along the way. I'm thankful that He makes me to lie down in green pastures and leads me beside the still waters. And there are times in my life that it seems like God is so uh, blessing my life that, that there's nothing that could discourage me. But then there are other times in my life I'm brought pretty low. And it's during those times that He restores my soul. I remember a number of years ago going through some just devastating times in my life. I remember not even being able to sleep and uh, for days on end just could not get sleep for the, the stress and the fretting and the worry that was going on in my life. And I remember rolling out of bed about 2.30 in the morning after tossing and turning and going and getting a shower and driving down to the church down in Florida about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. I remember my wife saying, where are you going? I said, I can't sleep. I, I, just, I might as well go on to work. And I, I got to the, to the church and I began to walk around. We had about eight acres of property there. I began to walk around and just pray. and said, Lord, I've got to have some relief. I can't endure this anymore. It's, it's more than I can bear. Got to have some relief. I remember sitting in a in a chair in the middle of our auditorium and praying and, and weeping and saying, "Lord, I've got to have some relief. Got to have some relief." Later that day, I was driving down U.S. Highway One, and I was praying more. And I said, "Lord, I just don't know what else to do. I'm at a loss. I've done everything I know to do, and it just seems like there's no end to the tunnel." There's no light there. And I had despaired. And I felt a lot perhaps like the Apostle Paul did when he, he said that, uh, that he had become weary of life, that he, was, he had things in his life that were beyond strength. That he was ready for life itself to be in it. And not that I was thinking suicidal thoughts, but I thought, Lord, it can't get any worse than this, and there's no remedy. Riding down the road, this phrase from Psalm 23 came to my heart. And just those three words, four words, He restoreth my soul, came to mind. And the tears began to flow. And I thought, Lord, I needed that. I needed that during this time. A number of months later, after that issue had subsided, and God had miraculously done some things to help in some areas, and had indeed provided some relief, a fella came over from the west coast of Florida and took me out to lunch and said, uh, let's go to lunch. We were getting ready to sit in the booth. I no sooner sat down, he looked across the table and he said, he said, Brother Greg, tell me something God's done for you lately or maybe a passage of Scripture that's been sweet to you or something that God's done for you recently. By the way, we ought to always be ready to give an answer to what God's done in our lives. Without hesitation, I looked at it. And the tears began to flow again. And I shared with him the issue that was going on. And I said, I was driving down the road about a week or two ago, several weeks ago. I said, I was in despair. And this phrase came to mind, He restored my soul. It's one thing to have a brother or a sister or a mom or a dad to come and put their arms around us and to hug us and tell us they care. To tell us it's going to be all right and that they're there to help us and to support us and to strengthen us. It's one thing to have a dear friend or a church member to come and know of the, the, 
distress or the burden that you're under and to put an arm around you and to pray with you and say, it's going to be okay. But oh, how sweet it is when the God of all heaven comes to us and says, I'll restore your soul. Psalmist said, He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me beside the still waters. There are times when the disciples were in the tempestuous sea of Galilee in great storms and waves that were overtaking the ship. They thought they were going to die. And in those times they cried out to the Lord and He stilled the storm. I'm so thankful for God that can calm the storm. I'm thankful for God that in our darkest hours He'll restore our soul and lead us beside the still waters. Probably one of the great, great verses of this chapter is found in verse number 4. He says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art what? Can I tell you the greatest promise of Psalm 23? It's not just the fact that the Lord is going to be a shepherd to us and guide our steps. It's not just the fact that He's going to supply our needs. It's not just the fact that He's going to give grace to us and comfort to us in time of need. I believe the greatest promise of Psalm 23 is, For I am with thee, or without with thee. The fact that God's presence is with us. You say, how does that work, Pastor? He gives us the third part of the Trinity, the third part of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Bible tells us, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in us, which we have of God. And we are not our own, for we are bought with a price. Can I tell you this? Every step I take in this world, everything I think, everything I see, everything I hear, everything I do, the Holy Spirit of God is not only a witness to it, but is there prodding and probing along the way and saying, uh, Greg, you need to go this way. You need to do what's right. You need to read the Scriptures. You need to know what they say. You need to not just know them. You need to obey them and do it. The great promise of Scripture is the presence of God for us. In Haggai chapter number 2, we're not going to turn there for sake of time, but if you get time this afternoon, I would encourage you to go read Haggai's chapters 1 and 2. There had been a great temple that was built by Solomon. David had wanted to build it. God wouldn't allow him to because he was a bloody man, a man of war. and So God allowed Solomon, his son, to do it. David helped prep, uh, give all the preparations for it. And the temple that Solomon built, I've read descriptions of it, I've, I've seen artist renderings of it, was magnificent. I mean, beyond anything you could imagine in its ornateness, in its majesty, in its, and rightfully so, by the way. Doesn't God deserve our best? This thing was a sight to behold, I believe, in the day. Because of Israel's hardness of heart and rebellion, God uh, sent uh, Nebuchadnezzar to... Uh, surround Jerusalem and put siege to it and hauled some people off into captivity. With Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are some of the guys that went off into captivity. <coughs> In one of the three sieges that he had over a period of years, he destroyed the temple, this beautiful, beautiful temple. Burned it to the ground, destroyed it. He took all of the instruments of the tabernacle or the temple and took them back to Babylon and defiled them. Nehemiah and Ezra come on the scene. They encourage 
children of Israel to rebuild the wall, and they do so, and God prospers them. They rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem, and then they moved on as a as they had revival under Ezra, they moved on to the rebuilding of the temple. They got the foundation restored. And all of a sudden, the, the, everything stopped and ceased for a number of years. God's patience with Israel was beginning to wear thin because they had not completed His house. And Haggai chapter 1 is all about that. If you wonder, you read that chapter, you wonder what's He talking about. It's because they were all running to their own houses. And God's house, the God's tabernacle, God's temple was lying waste. He tells them to go and get wood, go up to the mountains and take wood, build the house, and I will take pleasure in it. In chapter 2, they do that. And there's some old men, some old folks from the nation of Israel, who were alive when the temple that Solomon had made was still in existence before it was destroyed. And as these men began to rebuild the temple and to do what was referred to as the second temple here, they began to criticize and they say, this temple is nothing like Solomon's temple. I mean, Solomon's temple had gold and tapestries and the most ornate and the most most elegant of everything. This structure that you're building is crude and it's not as ornate and it's not as beautiful, it's not as magnificent as Solomon's temple. And you know what God's reply to them? was he told him he told him be strong of good courage and continue the work and do the work and he said I will my presence will fill this temple and the glory of this temple will be greater than the one that was before it you say what made the difference what caused the second temple to be greater in glory than that first temple it was nothing like it it was it could not hold a candle to the ornateness and the majesty and the magnificence of the first temple. What made the difference? One thing. God's presence. He said, I'll fill the house. And the glory of this latter house will be greater than that of the first. And I tell you this. The great promise of Psalm 23 is, Thou art with me. Oh, what a promise. I enjoy friends and fellowship. Sometimes I'll get some of the men together. We'll go get a biking. I enjoy being with and in the presence of people in our church. I enjoy our lunch times on Sunday afternoon, the time that we have the fellowship together. I enjoy that. Can I tell you this? It does not even come near comparing with the fact that I have the very presence and company of the Lord Jesus Christ with me. Psalmist said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't care how deep and dark the trial is. He said, I'm not going to fear. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. The psalmist rejoices in this. He said, Thy rod and thy staff may comfort thee. I've taught on this before. I'm not going to belabor the point. But we've all seen the, the shepherd's staffs that they would carry. Which often had, had a, a crook in the end of it so they could reach down and often pull sheep out of the thickets or some that had gone over a cliff to be able to lift them up out of a, out of a ravine or out of a, a hard place where they had fallen. But that staff what was used for comfort and for rescue and for care 
or it could also be used as a rod. And when it was used as a rod, it was used not for the protection, the nourishment, the help. It was used in a chastening manner. The sheep was continuously running off from the shepherd during the Bible times, during the times of David. They would take that sheep and they would hold his two front legs as they tucked him in under his arm, the shepherd's arm. They would hold the two front legs and they would take that staff and they would break his two front legs. And then they would gently bandage them up. And the shepherds of that day had a special pocket that was inside their cloak and they would take that sheep and gently place him inside the, the cloak in that little, that little pocket there. And they would hold him for however long it took, several weeks for the legs to mend and to heal. When the healing had taken place, they would take the sheep and they would release him and let him go with the other sheep. And the reason for that was, after being so near to the shepherd for such a long period of time, they never wandered more than a few feet from the shepherd for the rest of their life. The psalmist was a shepherd. He knew these things. He understood the rod and the staff. He didn't just say, Thy staff comforts me. But did you notice he said, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I'm thankful for God's watch care over us, His gentle care. I'm thankful for the fact that He guides my steps, protects me along the way. The psalmist said He had set me behind Him before. He's my fortress and my high tower. He's the one that puts a path before me, lays out the way in front of me. But there are times He also has to chase it. And the psalmist said, both of them, whether it's the nurturing aspect of the shepherd or the corrective aspect of the shepherd, they bring comfort to me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. The psalmist certainly knew this. He understood, fleeing for his own life, how God would provide for him. In the most distressing of times, Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. Can I tell you this? It does not matter what man does to us. What matters is, are we pleasing God? And is He pleased with us? Is He pleased with us? The Bible tells us in the New Testament that we're not to think more highly than we are. That we're to submit ourselves to God and we're to resist the devil. The Bible tells us when we do these things, we submit ourselves to Him and yield our will to His will. The Bible says that He will exalt us in due time. He'll anoint your head with oil. It may not be on this side of heaven. There's going to come a day. In fact, my Bible tells me that we're going to be able to rule and reign with Him during His millennial reign. Think about this. 
I prepared this table for me in the presence of my enemy. Thou anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. There's a lot of us sitting here today that the truth be told, our cups ought to be running over. And it's not because of God's lack of blessing upon our life. It's a lack of our recognition for God's blessing upon our life. God is always good. And He's always right. God gives blessings to us that we don't even consider or see as blessings. How many of you have prayed for something specifically to happen and it did not happen? Any of you have that? It's hard to thank God for that sometimes, isn't it? You know, when we get to heaven one day, we're going to be able to see why it didn't happen. And even in those things, we can thank Him. Why? Because God is always good. We don't look at that as a blessing, but the truth of the matter is, if it's what God's answer to our prayer request was, we can mark it down. That was a blessing for us. Because it was for our good. It was for His glory. I think there ought to be among Christians, especially in the day that we live, Christians that say, my cup runneth over. I heard a preacher say it this way one time. We ought to be effervescent Christians. And he, he said, you know, when you take uh, Alka-Seltzer and you drop it in a glass of water, it gives off all those bubbles, begins to froth. And, and if you got water close to the top of the cup, you've got to be careful because it will overflow and it will start pouring out. And i tell you this, there ought to be an effervescence of our spiritual life pouring over. Our cup runneth over because truly, truly, the God of all creation is not just the shepherd of the United States. It's not just the shepherd of Keith the Heights Baptist Church. By the way, it's not just the shepherd of you. But I can say it this way. The Lord is my shepherd. By the way, He's yours too if you're saved. Oh, the wonderful blessings of trusting Him as our Savior. Our cup runneth over. The psalmist said this, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I encourage you in this. God's goodness is always there. You say, well, you don't know the bad things that have happened in my life. i tell you this. No matter what bad things happen in our life, God is good and His goodness still exists. And His goodness is still being applied to us. There are times that we of our own free will go against God and we bear the consequences of our decisions this side of heaven. There are scars to our sins. But the truth of the matter is God is still good. Just because I chose to do wrong does not mean he's ceased being good. The psalmist said that surely goodness and, I like this word, mercy, shall follow me. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that if it were not for God's mercies, we would be consumed every day. I'm thankful God had mercy on my soul and saved me. I'm thankful God had uh, enough grace to cover my sin and to give me forgiveness and pardon and to give me a home in heaven for eternity. I'm thankful His grace allows me to have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of me. 
But it didn't just happen the day I got saved. The Bible tells us that His mercies are renewed each and every day. I was going through college. One of the great hymns that I loved to sing was so dear to my heart during that time period is, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning in Thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions they fail not. As Thou hast been, Thou forever wilt be. Great is Thy faithfulness. Great is Thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, Thou hast provided. Great is Thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Oh, what a hymn that expresses, I believe, the heart of a shepherd psalmist. We pen these words, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. And I love this. All the days of my life. And then the psalmist ends with a promise and a commitment to God. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23 is often quoted. It's so memorized and so used in so many areas of our life that I feel, I fear that we often fail to think about what it's actually saying. What a great psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still water. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemy. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's stand together, shall we? Heads bowed, please, and eyes closed. I'm not going to point anyone out. I'm not going to embarrass anyone. But my heart's desire is for every person in this room to know that they're on their way to heaven. To have put their trust and their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for them. And I would urge you and encourage you, if you have not made that choice, that decision in your life before now, do it today. Do it today. Don't linger. Don't wait. And for those of us that are saved, I wonder, is our cup running over? Are we joyful and grateful for all that God has done for us? Not just in saving our soul, which should be reason enough, but for the fact that He is my shepherd. Do we spend time dwelling and meditating and thinking on these things? Do we allow our hearts to be stirred? Are our cups running over with the blessings of the God that is our shepherd? Where is the zeal of the Christian life? Where is the joy? Where is the absolute adoration and worship and love that we had for Him the moment we got saved. <coughs> has it dwindled? Has it grown cold? The psalmist knew what it was to backslide and to 
be away from the Lord. And at one point in one psalm, he said this, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Perhaps that needs to be the prayer of our heart today. Father, we pray that you'll bless the message and encourage us and strengthen us through your word. I pray that you'll use it now. That it will be called to mind frequently and often. May we not lose the power of this mighty song just because of the familiarity that it has to us. May it be special. May it be profound. May it be something that amazes us each and every time we quote or read it. There's someone here today that does not know you as their Savior. Lord, would you draw their hearts, help them to have that desire to trust you as their Savior, to get that matter settled once and for all. Bless you during invitation time. Do as you would see fit in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With heads bowed, please, and eyes closed. <coughs> we'll have Miss Evelyn, if she would, to play a hymn of invitation. If you would like to use our altar here, the altar is open. You're welcome to come and pray. If you want to pray in your seat, that's fine as well. But what I would urge you to do is, if God has pricked your heart, if God has put something on it, would you spend that time, this time that we have offered, to respond to that?